How's everybody doing? Man, we're full house, man. The, the, the stacks just kept, kept going. The chairs, you guys, the guys in the back did an amazing job as people were coming in during worship, getting people seated. Um, if more people come in, if you don't mind, you can scoot in and allow them to get in uh, in a seat today. Um, it's just one of the, it's kind of the thing that's happening in this season of the church. You know, we, we hit a, you know, a skid in 2020 where things, you know, all of churches kind of um, went inward and, and it was just weird, man. Uh, and we were at a peak of our growth as a church, and God was doing a lot of stuff. But I feel like, you know, God, it was almost like God intentionally said, hey, you're not ready for that. And then all of a sudden, here we go. We're in 2022, and uh, God is doing some amazing things through the life course. And we just, we see that God's, yeah, there's going to be, there's, this is a season of growth. Uh, and like Dan said, it's great to, you know, have, you know, amazing food at the life course and things that, that God's doing, but um, also to underwrite some of that stuff as we grow. And kids serving, those type of things, it's like all of a sudden, I mean, I walked back there, and it is, it seems like the funnest time of all time. Uh, when you walk around that corner, I was going to get a drink of water, and I mean, there was packed rooms with kids having the best time, and people breathing the gospel over your kids. Pretty amazing. Well, if you guys haven't been with us uh, over the uh, last couple of weeks, specifically last week, we moved into uh, a new series, but it's not really a new series. It's our Come and Listen series, which we've been doing since 2014. Um, I don't usually tell people to go back and listen to a talk from previous weeks because I feel like, oh, I'm just telling people my stuff is awesome. You need to go listen to it. But you really, it gives you kind of some context of how the Come and Listen series works, and it catches you up because the Come and Listen series dives into the entire narrative arc of Scripture. It goes into these individual stories of God's faithfulness, but then it zooms out and shows you that every page whispers Jesus' name, that it's about his death, his burial, his resurrection, that God is weaving the story together in and through his word, leading us back to himself and showing us that he is the relentless hound of heaven coming uh, to bring us home. So that is what the Come and Listen series is all about. We started back in 2014 in uh, Genesis, and we're all the way up to Ezra, and we walked through that uh, last week, so that's another good, good way to get caught up. But I wanted to start out today talking a little bit about the king. So we're, we're, we're in this period in Ezra where the Israelites have returned back home, and it's not really home to them yet. They're getting settled, and y'all know what that's like when you're, you know, you, you move in and you get back in. I'm just back at my house after uh, being out for eight and a half months, and uh, it's crazy. It's a disaster at home, but we are all glad to be home. It's kind of what's going on with them, but to an to a exponential degree. The temple had been destroyed in 586 BC. Um, it's just kind of an upheaval, and they're getting to, think about this, you've got most, mostly the, the southern kingdom, if you know anything about the split between Israel and uh, Judah and Benjamin, you've got the, all, all of Israel now coming back together, and some of the, the, the northern kingdom exiles that have been exiled a whole lot longer are finding out that, hey, we're, everybody's allowed to go back, and of course, most of the people that were a part of the southern kingdom are starting to make their way back to the places where they were, and there was the people that were already there uh, that were just kind of dispersed in and around the city that just decided to stay or found ways to stay in Jerusalem after the temple was destroyed and after they were in Babylonian exile. But I wanted to get us kind of from a historic, this is one of the most fascinating, if you look at, because we're entering into a season and a place in the Bible where you can see the parallels with secular history. So if you go read Xenophon or Herodotus, you'll see all of the you know, the timelines. Now, a lot of this is disputed, so you kind of have to take a collection of different things that you see in the Bible and take the commentaries to get an idea. So somebody that's a historian is going to see my version of which kings go when, and if you're, 
you know, you're reading your Encyclopedia Britannica, it's probably going to look a little different. Um, but uh, this, when we look at the Bible, and we look, at, and it's the cool thing is, it's it is very consistent in many ways. That this far back that we have the same names, the same people, the same stuff in history. You've got these things where we can nail down the historical timeline. And the reason that that's important as we're reading the Bible is it gives us context for what's happening. And that's how God makes it relate to us. Because what's amazing about the passage we're getting ready to dig into is it seems like something that would happen today. Um, even though it's you know so long ago, it's, it's very... It's, it's ancient. So I want to take a look at the beginning of this. So the Babylonian Empire, remember the, the, the Israelites were taken into Babylonian exile um, and in about 580, well, actually 608, 609 B.C. is when that really started. The temple was wiped out in 586 B.C. But if you want to look at kind of the, the, you know, the emperors and the kings in this particular structure, let's go through them. You've got the first one, I think it's uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, which, you know, if you've watched VeggieTales, you know how he looks. <laughs> And what he's all about. Um, so you got the exile of the kingdom in 609 to destroy the temple in 586. And then his son, and I think his grandson, both were named uh, Nabonidus, but one of his other grandsons, Nabonidus, ended up having to go into exile for some reason. And then Belshazzar, which we see in Scripture. So Nabonidus, you don't really hear about in the Bible, but Belshazzar, you hear about. Remember when the writing on the wall, if you ever read the book of Daniel, and, and things didn't go well for Belshazzar after that. Um, and then you go back to his father came back and, and took back over again. And then you keep continuing. Go to the next one. And then you've got Darius the Mede. Now, Darius the Mede, if you look in secular history, Darius the Mede, you won't find him really anywhere. You might find a shred of him somewhere, but there's this, they contest that he was ever a king. And he's called a king in scripture. So a lot of your commentary will say it's possible that he was a, he was a governor. Uh, and then he was called a king, that he had a big, large territory. That was very common that there would be, you know, that you could be called a king and be a, a governor, and, and very likely. So Darius the Mede uh, is in there, and Darius is the one that was favorable to uh, Daniel and, and was part of the reason. And Nebuchadnezzar was too at the end, more towards the end of his life, but allowed Daniel to rise in, in power and be, you know, in that second and third slot of command over all of Babylon, which is pretty crazy. And all of his friends were governors in, in the area, and they were Israelites, but they were so good at what they did. They found a way um, as people that followed God to be in, you know, influence and power. And man, what a, what a hope that, that we have that that can happen in our time. All right, so let's go from Babylonian Empire to um, the Persian Empire. So then all of a sudden, what, what do we have? We have Cyrus that comes in and he defeats Nabonidus and he becomes the emperor in 536 BC. Now, we talked about last week that there was a prophecy probably close to 100 years before Jeremiah and Isaiah both prophesied that a guy named Cyrus would come along and that he would be favorable to the Israelites and allow them to come home. And that's exactly what's happening. And then from Cyrus, you've got Artaxerxes. Now, you're going to see, if you look in history, there's a lot of Artaxerxes. There's like, there's Artaxerxes one, and this, this one's before that. In some, his, like, historical books, that, you know, he's Cambyses. But for all practical purposes, when we see him in Scripture, he is uh, Artaxerxes. So keep on going. And then you got Darius the Great, different Darius. There's a lot of Dariuses, too. You know, Darius Rucker. I mean, he's really awesome <laughs> if you are... Into that, man, it just reminds me of my college days. So you keep going, and then you've got Ahasuerus, which is Xerxes. Um, anybody battle Thermopylae? What movie? Come on, a little quiet, 300. I watched it. Yeah, I did. It was really bloody. Kids weren't in the room. Um, yeah, that's, uh, and, and this is why this is, gets super interesting when you're reading the Bibles. You can look at, 
and go through secular history and see, look, this is not a fairy tale book. Like this is, I mean, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't written. God didn't put it in, into play to be a, something we could follow history. So you don't see all the pieces and parts. It's following the people of God. It's digging into individual stories of God's faithfulness, like the story of Ruth. I mean, that's something you wouldn't find in history, but it's a narrative of a true story that leads us to the ultimate story of redemption. But, but there is history in it. It's not a science book, but we, we, we look at the Bible as it's, the, it's our credible filter for life. It is our 100. That's the thing that we believe in, that we put our heart and soul in. So when we look at Ezra, if you put that, can we put all, like, all of them back up and I can show where, we're, where we are? Yeah, Persian Empire. So if you look at the Artaxerxes, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, Darius, um, and I had this section right here is this period where we've got Ezra and Nehemiah are actually together. They're, they were written as one book. Most likely the author of both, or one, uh, was Ezra. And it's kind of broken up into three separate parts. You've got Zerubbabel, who's on the scene in the beginning, who is kind of setting the foundation of the temple, and they all kind of overlay each other. And then later, as we move a little bit further into Ezra, you see where Ezra rolls in, and I think about chapter 7, and then we get into the book of Nehemiah. So they all kind of over, they're all working together. Zerubbabel is kind of getting the infrastructure of the city, but more importantly than that, the infrastructure of worship put in place. And then Ezra's the one that's like, hey, we're going to, it's time to have church. Like we are going to read the law. Everybody's going to cry because they haven't been home in so long and it's going to be amazing. And he's also going to put the, and continue with the infrastructure of the church. And Ezra's going to work with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the business guy that has lots of contacts, works with the government, and he's the one that's getting the, the wall built. So that's kind of the way you see the structure of Ezra, you know, start out. And then as we look through Ezra and Nehemiah, kind of a, a summary of it. But in Ezra, if you got your Bible, in chapter four, we we're in chapter three last week, it starts out with the, the, the words, win the enemies. And you know, I just want to say that word enemies really is adversaries. These are people that don't think and believe the same way. The word enemy sounds a little bit like they were you know, ready to you know, come in with swords and kill everybody. They weren't those type of enemies. They were just different than the people of God. They were different than the Israelites that were there. So when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, which is the southern kingdom, which was predominantly the, the Jews that were in Jerusalem at the time, when, when the enemies of Benjamin and Judah heard that the exiles were building the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time um, of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, I have to stop here because it's a little confusing. It's like, it says the enemies of the Lord or the enemies of ben Judah and Benjamin came and they wanted to help. Now, initially I thought, okay, because I'd read the book of Nehemiah, they're trying to help so they can cause problems. Um, but that's actually, in commentary, not really what was happening. The, these enemies or these adversaries, what we find out later, were inhabitants of the area. And they were descendants of Israelites, ones that stayed in and around Jerusalem. And they, but they had stayed and they had intermarried with the Babylonians and now uh, the, the Persians that were in the area and then any of the, the other inhabitants in the area. So the Israelites had this issue with them. This is where the racism kind of raises its head in this particular era. They hated, like they did not want anything that they thought. These people did not follow God. They intermarried. They did all the wrong stuff. They, and, and a lot of it was true. They did ingrain themselves in that culture. They did what God told them not to do. So immediately they, you know, everybody's kind of like, hey, we're not, we don't want to, we don't know if we, how much we want to 
mingle with them. So they're considered adversaries and enemies. But as you continue to read, when they asked, can we help? Can we jump in? Hey, we've been here. We want to see things get, you know, back to the way that they were, our ancestors and the way that things were back then. It says, but Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now, my question when you're, when you're reading scripture, when you're looking at and studying the Bible, it's one of the things I love about the Come and Listen series because we can break some of this down, is you want to ask, is this, is this a descriptive passage or is it prescriptive? In other words, is this describing through narrative what's going on or is this something that we're supposed to take and say, God's telling us to do this? So when I look at the way that the priest and the way that the head families that have come back to Jerusalem are treating these people, I'm asking the question, is this what we're supposed to do with outsiders, people that aren't like us? Are we supposed to push them aside? Are we supposed to reject them? Are we supposed to uh, immediately eliminate them from our sphere of influence or allowing them to take part in something? Now, I, we don't know all of the details of the situation. We know how things unfold later on, but I would say no. And what you find out later is this is where we... This is these people that were there that were a part of exile, but they stayed around and they intermarried with the Babylonians and they just created kind of their own culture. These, this is the Samaritans. So when you go roll into the New Testament, this is where we first start to see how this all took place. Why you've got two groups of people living very close. I mean, neighbor distance, but they hate each other. I'm talking about violent racism towards one another, the Samaritans and the Israelites. But the Samaritans were in, in some way... Israelites. And it was the Israelites completely, they were unclean, they were rejected because they mixed, you know, the, the laws of Moses and, and God's laws kind of with their own area mysticism and things like that. They definitely had some brokenness. But the, the, the response from the people that had come back was complete rejection. There was no, hey, we're going to, it wasn't like the way that God kind of treated Ruth and the, you know, they were Moabites. They were outsiders too. But all of a sudden, God sends Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, and redeems their life in such a powerful way. That's not what we're seeing happen here. So these are the Samaritans that are in the area. They kind of reject them. And it says in verse 4, it says, Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. So what happens is a reactionary. These people were already living in Jerusalem. Here comes people that hadn't been there for 70 years. And they all come back and roll back into town. And they're like, hey, can you, can you get out of my way? We got to build our stuff. We got to build infrastructure. And they're starting to push them to the, to the outskirts. They were frustrated. And in the, in the mix of this, the people, they set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid. They were mad. This is what people do. They, instead of work it out, they're like, hey, you don't believe like I believe. You don't think like I think. Let's fight. So what did they do? They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we saw where they were on the timeline. You got Cyrus, and then Darius takes over. And then Darius was, again, favorable. But in the, in the, in the midst of Cyrus and Darius is Artaxerxes. And so this story continues. I'll just paraphrase for you. So you've got the beginning. This is kind of, that's the summary cap right there that we just read. And you've got... The people of Israel come back. They've got the Samaritans, the, 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 they call them half-breeds, that are around. They want to help, and then they basically say, you know what? They don't want us helping. This isn't going to work out. We're not friends. We're going to 
kind of cause trouble. We're going to make sure this doesn't happen. We're going to make sure they don't invade and that we can be in charge. And then it goes into a kind of a micro story where specific Samaritans start to hatch a plan. They said, hey, we need to get a, a, a note to Artaxerxes, the Persian emperor at the time. After This is years and years later. So they're building the temple. Think years and years have passed when you're reading Ezra chapter 4. And they get going, they start doing their thing, and then all of a sudden, these three guys get a letter to Artaxerxes that says, hey, there was a, there was a good reason this temple was destroyed. And they went down some historical things. They, back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, like, the, hey, the Babylonian emperors that you defeated, they had good reason. This is what these people did. They weren't good. They did these things. They separated themselves from everybody else. They weren't nice people. They, did, you know, they just went through this whole list of reasons why we shouldn't let them build the temple. We shouldn't let them inhabit this place. We should, this is not good. We should shut this down. Artaxerxes reads it and immediately calls his commanders in, sends them into Jerusalem, sieges the city, and says, no more work, and stops the whole thing. And it stops. Based on my timeline, I could kind of see where Artaxerxes was in power and Darius, who was sympathetic to the Israelites, came in power. You got about five years of stoppage, like completely. I mean, it took like 58 years to rebuild the temple, and it wasn't even close to Solomon's temple when they finally did. But you got about five years where they couldn't, they couldn't even work because of the Samaritans. Now, when I read this passage, I, started, I was thinking about, you know, how does this relate to us in, in our, I mean, this is ancient text, ancient story, very interesting, but, you know, what is this, you know, I started thinking, well, you know, how do I get opposed in my daily life? You know, somebody took my parking space, and, you know, what, what are, what's our opposition? And I was thinking on the individual and personal level, and I think there certainly is. We talked a little bit about that last week, what it looks like to, you know, knowing that we don't wage war against flesh and blood, that there's a, you know, there's an enemy that wants to take us out, that does not want us following God, doesn't want us reading the Bible together, doesn't want us to gather. But we also have, on a global scale, and even just even in our own country, I think we do have opposition. We, we do have, like, it, like, never before. We're currently in a time in history where the cycle of opposition to organized religion, specifically Christianity, um, has increased exponentially. Like, we, I just got a letter at my house um, and an email that was of the same text that basically said, hey, you donated to an organization and we just want to let you know, being honest, that that organization was the, uh, part of a, a cyber attack. They would, they had, somebody came in and jacked all their data up, took all their data and gave a bunch of your information to bad people. Um, and they were just, you know, in disclosure saying, hey, we're sorry, this has happened, but we got to let you know that you've gotten it. And then they've, and this is kind of what it said. I mean, this is the, 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 the crux of it. We want to inform you that, um, you that a targeted cyber attack on our servers has compromised your information and your identity. The attacker has been identified and is, known, is a known entity that opposes overall Christian values, including many pro-life organizations and churches. And then it lists the, you know, the fact that they were doing this in order to take that information and give it to people that like to pick it, that like to you know, go, go, go in front of the church of church leaders that are pro-life and do all of the, you know, the crazy stuff. Go to your house, call your house and make phone calls. And they just said, hey, we want to warn you ahead of time your information was sent to this organization, um, which is crazy. This is kind of the stuff that you're... That, it was more benign 20 years ago, and it seems more active now. Um, the stuff that's happening, the emails that I've received in the last two years regarding us just meeting in this space and people that aren't happy about it. Like, we've, we've enjoyed 
a long season of all of our neighbors and the people, they, they realize, hey, we, are, we, are, we want to be here for the good of the community, the things that we're doing here, the things that we're a part of. We want people to, if we ever had to leave, one of our goals that we feel like God's given us by the power of the Spirit is that people would miss us because we had an impact at, at the Carver Center, because we're, we're, not, we're not here to be bad citizens, but good citizens that impact, that the gospel isn't just us shouting from the mountaintop, believe what we believe, but the gospel is actually bringing redemption and healing to the land, to this area in a positive way, where people have to say, look, I might not believe what they believe, but man, they're the nicest people on the planet, and look what they did for my kid. Look what they did for the community. That's always been our hope. And I, I really believe we're having that type of impact. But now we're getting, I'm getting letters from the landlord who loves us that's saying, hey, these, you know, we, you've received these, these complaints about your, and, and all of them, when I look down them, all of them lies. Like they're, they're, none of them are, are true. And it just makes me think that we are in a, this time in history where we are going to have opposition. Now, again, when I think about persecution in the Bible, we're not there. Like, we try to compare, we're being so persecuted in my cubicle, it's so terrible. It's just not, we're not the Apostle Paul. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not being persecuted at that level. But the difference between where we are now and where we were 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it is different. I mean, I could say that, you know, you, 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 all my parents said the same thing, you know, because and I and I, I'm 50, and I'm like, and it's, you back in my day, you know, this happened. My kids always, yeah, I know, it never happened, and it's always happened. But no, when it comes to the things of God and where we are as a country, we are far beyond, we are a post-Christian, post-modern culture. I mean, we, we were for many, many years have enjoyed the fact that our country was founded on, and it, there was brokenness in it, but founded on values that were pushing us closer to the gathering of the saints, closer to the carrying of the gospel with separation of church and state, which is really not a bad thing. But now we are way post-Christian. Everything has changed. So my question, and I just think it's relevant for us today, is how do we respond to opposition? What is, what's our, you know, what's our, because this is what was happening in Ezra. They were trying to figure, and I'm not sure they responded in the best way. It didn't, I mean, stoppage of work for five years didn't work out great. Now, God's sovereignty is why they got to come home. God spoke in, in the favor that, that the Israelites had with Cyrus and then again with Darius God's sovereignty. In fact, it was prophesied. So we know that God is in charge no matter good ruler, bad ruler. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a great guy, but God put him in power. I mean, these, Cyrus, I mean, you can go back and say, okay, yeah, he was known as Cyrus the Great and did some great things. But when it comes to overall, I mean, these people, but God put them in power for his purposes. The authorities that are in power, the, the, that whether we voted for them or not, God is sovereign and he will move and execute his plan on planet earth. So on the, on, the, on the front end of what we're talking about, trusting in God's sovereignty is, is definitely where it's at. But how do we respond to opposition? Not, not just from government, but individually and personally. How, how agreeable can we be? Like where do we sit and being, I mean, you know, how do we act towards a government if we disagree with that government? Because we don't, we're not, nobody agrees with everything that the government does, right? I mean, the gas prices are killing me. <laughs> I mean, the cost of food, like Dan mentioned, when I was at his house the other day, I'm going to call him out, um, but I agreed with him. He was looking at lunch meat, and it was $14.50 a pound for turkey. 
I mean, that is insanity. I mean, you can get a ribeye. I mean, I just, I mean, if you know meat, guys, some people are like, I don't, I, I'm all veggies. And well, if you eat meat, I mean, you are looking at that going, this may kill me. You know, this, I might die because I won't be able to buy enough protein. Um, but how do we act toward a government that we, we might disagree with? How do we respond to opposition? How do we, as God's called us, like Jesus, when he was praying for the disciples and praying for you and me as he walked on planet earth, he was praying to God saying, hey, do not take them out of the world, but what? Protect them from the evil one. In other words, we're not supposed to move out to a farm and huddle all together and completely separate ourselves from culture. We're supposed to stay in culture like Daniel did, influence it for what? Our good and God's glory or God's glory, which ultimately is our good, right? So what, how do we do that? What does it look like for us as opposition comes? Because it's coming. It's, it's, it's already in in a slow way. And, I, and some people are like, oh, you're an alarmist. And I'm, if you know me, I'm not. I mean, we walked through the pandemic and I, I'm, I'm not. But it has infiltrated government it's in, a, in, a, in a powerful way. It's why we are so polarized. It has certainly infiltrated our schools Got three kids, been through the school system, public school system, and I'm telling you, it's changed in the last just five years dramatically in what your kids are learning and what they're teaching your kids. Now, you know, how do we respond to that? What does it look like for us in our culture? And what do we do as a church? What's our responsibility as parents? What do we do as teenagers? What do we do as college students? How do we walk? Without, without putting a barrier up, and being the people that everyone hates, right? How, how do we do that? How do we gracefully walk, you know, in grace and truth as people? Well, we're going to go through four things. We could, we could do this one for probably the next two months. But we're going to talk briefly about four things and how we respond to opposition. And again, this, this should spawn other conversations in your families. This should spawn other common, com, you know, conversations with the people that are in your city group, uh, maybe with your life course group, to ask some of these questions later down the road. Okay, how do we respond to opposition? Things that are opposed to God, things that oppose us. The first one is, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It says in 1 Peter 4.12, it says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And why does it say that? If you read the context, this is all about persecution. This is all about people not agreeing with what was happening with this group of people that were having church. They were carrying the gospel to the communities around them. They were sending out missionaries, doing the things that we do as a church. And he says, hey, don't, don't be surprised when you get opposition. And why is he saying that? Because we, we're not supposed to be. We, one, we believe that God is sovereign, Two, that will, that, if we're surprised, then that might drive us to be defensive and angry. This is, that's, that's the moment when we go crazy angry. Have you ever been opposed? Somebody says something, you read something on Facebook, or somebody sends you something. My instinct, I got a, I got a letter a week ago about, our, about the church building and where we are. It, was, it had to do with some parking issues and some things like that. And again, a bunch of untrue stuff. My first, my, I'm just being honest. My first response was, Oh, I'll show them. We'll cone up every spot. Nobody will be parking in our lot. You know, this is how we're going to respond. You know, we have been here. We have, you know, we have 70% of the building. It's our parking lot. You know, I just was like, come on, man. And my first response is like, I cannot believe this. 
why would somebody lie about we're church for nice people? You know, I just couldn't believe it. But we're not supposed to be surprised. Why? Because my, my reaction was what? You know? Oh, we're going to tell the parking team. We're going to put the cones up. Rather than, hey, how about let's lift the cone and let the guy that's going to the shop down there or deli comb and just let him come on in. Greet him. You know? Say, hey, enjoy a spot. We'll park somewhere else. You know? It wasn't instinct. It wasn't instinct. But if we think about, hey, this is... See we are, and how do we how do we wage war against that? Is it cone up all the spots? I'm gonna post on Facebook how much I hate that organization. You know, I'm just gonna I'm gonna blow up and tell them I'm gonna put a couple Bible verses on it too, make it really cool. <laughs> Don't be surprised; it's gonna happen. But, but what we do in that moment, and the reason Peter's saying it is, hey, we it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. They're, they're gonna be frustrated just because. You go to church just because you walked in here, because you call yourself Christian. They're waiting for you to throw the cone down and say, you can't park here. But what if we do the opposite? What if we say, hey, you take all these, we'll walk. You're not going to stop us from going to church. We're going to come to church. We're going to worship. But you know what? You can have these spaces. It's, it's our gift, right? We're going to just, ole, just come on through. They saw the signs. They see the stuff. They see the parking team. We're not going to be like, and then the parking team smiles like, come on in park. You're all good. Now, if you walk to the beach, we're getting you towed. Um, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. Second one, keep loving each other. And this is about us in the room. Keep loving each other. This is the problem. Think about this. All of these people were in one place. They had just returned and the expectation was way up here. Like, hey, we've got all these People we hadn't seen, I mean, it's been 400 years really since they've all been together. I mean, if you really count all the, all the time that's passed since the first exile of the northern kingdom with the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now we've got the Persians. It's like, it's, it's been a long time. And they're, you know, they're expecting that everybody's going to think the same way. Everybody's going to look like we are all Southern Baptists, and that's the only way that's right, right? Instead, they're thinking, you know, we're going we're gonna to do it this way. And you've got all this, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of the things of God, and in terms of extending grace. And for, for you and for me, in the midst of opposition, I said this last week, you know, we all thought the pandemic would unify churches and unify everyone. Wrong. I mean, it just didn't, right? Keep loving each other. First Peter, there's so much wisdom uh, in First and Second Peter on these, on these issues. Above all, and this is all about opposition, at the end of a passage on all the opposition that had come towards the church. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. At the end of the day, don't be surprised. Let's start out with, look, we, we, don't, even, we don't know how to respond yet, but the, the thing we know we're not going to do is internally divide and start backbiting. I mean, you read Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. There's two people that were, had worked together, and they were carrying the gospel together, and all of a sudden, they get in a fight. And the Apostle Paul says, don't be like these jack wagons. Don't do it like this. The, 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 this is the lot. We do not need to be going this direction. We don't want to. My, my dad, my dad used to say this about me and my, me and my brother. I grew up, my brother's three years older than me. Um, and he was bigger and it was frustrating. Um, but we fought all the time. I mean, you just did. It would start with, huh, 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 you know, it just would go. And if my dad, my, my dad was like, you can fight anybody you want. If you fight each other, then you fight me. 
I mean, he just would not allow it. It's like, no division in the household. You're harming, you know, is that kind of thing. Do not fight one another. Keep loving each other. Keep meeting together. One of the, one of the ways that we do that as the church, and one of the things they were doing right at the time of Ezra is they made sure we were gonna gather together. We talked about this last week. We're gonna keep meeting together. When you stop talking to one another, when you stop meeting together, when you stop gathering, and this isn't just an advertisement for Ocean City. Wherever you go to church, wherever you make your home, be a part of the community there. It's not, church isn't a place you attend. It's somewhere you belong. It's a family. So you, you come together and you meet face to face. It is so much harder to be angry with somebody when you're talking it out. You might have some moments, but if there's silence, you're, you go to, what do you go to bed with? Assumption. They say one thing, a few words, and they didn't even mean it. And then you go to bed and you think the 18 things that you think they meant and the 18 people that they said something to about you. And you're like, they're talking about me. They're saying this, and this is what's happening, and people are talking behind my back, and this is what's That's all. We crush the enemy when we bring those things to the light with one another. We can't stop loving. When there's opposition, first and foremost, when a community faces challenges, we're tempted to turn against one another. We need to guard against this temptation, especially when opposition heats up. It's the most important time for us to be together. The battle is not against flesh and blood, so the battle should not, should not be against one another, first and foremost. All right, thirdly, love your enemies. This one is going to get a little hard. So I might get an email on this one. Um, love your enemies. Love your enemies. First Peter, again, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this you were called. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about how to be salt and light, how to be, we talk about what it means to be a city on a hill. A city on a hill is not like, look how we're doing it, we're doing it better. You can come up to the way that we've done it all right as a church. We're nice and shiny and sinless. No, Jesus is telling them, what does it look like to be a city on a hill? It's to get down where people are. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? He says, not even the tax collectors. He says, are, are not even the tax collectors doing that? He says, basically saying, hey, bad people, be, people that have no reason to choose the light, they, they love their friends. He says, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than anybody else? Don't even the pagans do that. And this is in the passage about loving your enemies. And he's saying, hey, look, that's, that's what normal, normal people do. But if, you, if we want to be the community that, that people go, I, I don't even understand how they do what they do, how they can, can love people that, that hate them. How is that possible? Well, it's the way that Christ in you, the hope of glory, shines. I love this quote in Gospel Coalition by David Gunderson. He says, ultimately, when we look at other people, we look at the outsiders, we look at opposition, it's never us versus them. It's Jesus for all. It's the gospel for all. It's grace and truth for all. The best way to imitate Christ is to treat people well when they wrong you. Loving your enemies, whether individual or collective, means treating others like Jesus has treated you. Because you were an enemy. I mean, when we think about who we were, I mean, how does this even take place? How can we love our enemies? It seems so hard. I, I had a knee-jerk reaction about a stupid letter I got about parking. How do we love our enemies? Well, you, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying it's the gospel. The only way it's possible. Our, our 
nature is to be defensive, to put up walls, to do crazy stuff that doesn't, I mean, it's, we, we don't reach out. We don't love our enemies. It's to protect ourselves. But in and through the gospel, we realized we were loved. While we were running away, while we didn't care about God, while we were sinning, while we were chasing everything but Jesus, Christ died for us. He gave his life for us. He bled out on Calvary. He never stopped chasing you. He's never stopped coming after you. If you don't know Jesus, that's what he's doing now. He's coming after you. That's how we love our enemies. We remember that we've received this wonderful, beautiful, amazing grace. And now we get to extend it, not just to our friends, but to the world, because it's Jesus for all. So I, I ask, you know, when I think about this idea that we should be good citizens, even if we think the government is bad. That's what Daniel did. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego did. Their, their government was bad. I mean, the, the reign of the Babylonians, I mean, it was a secular, crazy, Vegas-like culture. I mean, it was just out of hand. But they found a way to be influential. They, they found a way to be law-abiding most of the time and be good citizens and to be influencers, to find their, their way up the ranks in the political game and in the business game. Pretty incredible what they did. So what does it look like for us to be good citizens even if we think the government is bad? Well, Romans 13 gives us some... And this, this one gets people upset, but we'll talk about it. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted or put in place. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. He's saying it's not good to rebel against government. Now, I know what all of you, well, maybe half of you, are thinking. There's got to be a time when we rebel. Take up arms, you know. When, when do we do it? Like, when, when do we, what do we rebel against? When do we take a stand? What does that look like? Now, we could, again, we could take months to kind of break down what the filters look like. But we want to use, we want to always go back to a biblical filter. And I'm just looking at Romans 13, and I'm looking at the context of the Roman Empire. So let's just take it from that respect and regard, and then we'll kind of back up and talk about what it looks like and what time, times in life do we oppose government. One is you have to compare where we are in the United States to where they were in the Roman Empire. I mean, that's one thing I'm thinking of. It's like, you know, is it, is it worse or is it better? Were they more horrible people? Or, you know, what, what, how does that look? What does the United States government currently, as broken as you might think it is, look in comparison to Rome at the time Paul wrote this particular passage? We're not even close to as bad. I'm just going to give you, I could go down the historical things that happened at the time of the Roman Empire um, and what, you know, preceded this and what came after. I mean, you, it is, we're not even in the ballpark in terms of what was happening. You know, the human trafficking that was legal, the sexual and gender culture that, that we, you know, that we experience, you multiply it. And that's what we're looking at at the Roman Empire. And Paul still wrote this. So the question is, and he's being thrown in prison for doing things that aren't illegal. Like he's sharing the gospel, getting thrown in prison or taken outside the city and beaten. I mean, lots of bad things are happening to Paul at the hands of the government. Why in the world would he write this? I'm asking these questions. I don't know if you are. Well, if you read in context and figure out what, what the apostle Paul's trying to do and you look at First and Second Peter because same thing is, is said. Why would we do this? Why would we obey the governing authorities? One is they knew that Caesar was going to read this. Paul was in prison when he's writing it. 
So he knew that Caesar, it would ultimately, a letter like this would get to Caesar and Caesar would read it. And Paul wanted Caesar to know, hey, we are not here to rebel against the government. That is not what we're doing. That is not what we're trying to do. That is a waste of our energy to run around and pick it. We want to share the gospel. We, that's not, we're not trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. When Jesus came, they thought that's what he's going to do. He's going to take over. He's going to you know, jump on the, the throne in Jerusalem, and we, you know, we're going to be out from under Roman rule. No, Jesus was instituting a new kingdom. He had a bigger plan for all of humanity. And the apostle Paul is wanting them to understand and know, hey, that's not what we're here to do. It won't be from a logistical and practical standpoint to carry the gospel the way the Roman Empire is set up. It actually might work pretty well. So let's let them know, hey, we're not here to oppose government. We're not here to break all of your laws, and we're telling our people not to do that. So that was the practical side of things. Now, the lordship of Jesus always defines the limits of our submission to authority. So Jesus is top, not government. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Jesus is at the top. So when it comes to laws that would force you to do something that is opposed to what we know in Scripture, opposed to the movement, if somebody tells me to stop preaching the gospel, I'm just not going to do it. If it's illegal for me to, to, to preach and teach and to tell people about what Jesus has done, that he saves and nothing else does, I'm going to break some laws. In fact, in Scripture, the law is broken several times. Think about all the way back to Exodus, the midwives that took Moses. There was a decree that all those male babies were going to be killed, right? They didn't want this. This thing was getting out of hand for the Egyptians. They're like, these, you know, we, they're going to have a bunch of male soldiers soon. So they started just killing them. These midwives said, we cannot have this, killing our babies. So they stepped in, and they saved this one baby that was floating down a stream. So we're going to take them. We're going to put them in our house. I mean, crazy. But they were breaking the law. Daniel, lion's den. I mean, another some good veggie tales on that one too. <laughs> Daniel in the lion's den. He was, and he was a law-abiding citizen, and Darius liked him. Darius the Mede really liked Daniel. He liked, he, I mean, he was like as close to a Christian as you could get in the Babylonian Empire. But because of the laws and the way that they structured him, because there was a lot of people that opposed Daniel, they threw some stuff in the, in the mix and said, he's not supposed to be praying three times a day. He can't do that. Daniel just did it right in front of his window. Broke the law. Because what? Jesus is the highest value and the one that we filter our life on, the word of God is. Acts chapter 5. Peter and John preaching the gospel. What happens? They, get, they keep getting brought before the Sanhedrin. They're like, we told you not to preach the gospel. And they said, there's no way you can stop us. We cannot stop talking about we, we We saw him die. We saw him put in the tomb. And we saw him after. We know what the truth is. And we can't stop talking about Jesus. They did it over and over and over again. So when do we disobey or go against government? I think it's obvious. When we've got, we've got those moral break lines that tell us we, we can't do this. This is the point where, I mean, the church has to go underground and has to go underground. Now, I don't think we're, we're there. I think that, that's, I mean, we know that just based on Scripture. That is the future. But we know where the break line is, and it's always going to be in that place where Jesus stands. Jesus is the authority over government, always. But that's what gives us the ability to obey government. Last but not least, trust God and do good. How do we oppose opposition? By trusting God. 
and doing good. If we don't trust God, I think it's the first thing we have to understand that God is sovereign in all things. If we don't trust him, then, then no way we're going to do good. We're just going to defend ourselves. So we've got to trust that God, the, reason, the, the opposition that's in place, the authorities that are in place, the things that are in place, God put them there. So I don't have to get defensive. I don't have to get angry. And if I trust God, then I can do good. It says this, 1 Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Rather than posting on Facebook and telling them that they're wrong, do good. Because that, that makes people be quiet. Just like I said, if, you're, if we're doing things that are good for the community, for the thriving of where God's placed us, which is one of the things that God's asked us to do as human beings, to, to do good for your culture and your community, then it, it, it puts people, it makes people quiet. You know, I was looking at, you know, all the things that, you know, you, you have things that, have happened recently. You got the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and we're we're a pro-life, very strong pro-life stance here at Ocean City Church. And you've got you've got all this conversation that explodes, and people. I mean, I get this. this I've gotten this question a lot. Like, well, what are we, what are we supposed to do? What's the church's next move? You know, how do we? You know, what's what's next? How do we how do we move towards things? And I I don't honestly. I'm, I, we've been thinking through that as elders and thinking like, what what does it look like to be in a culture that's as explosive and polarized as ours, but where Roe versus Wade has been overturned. I mean, which is crazy to think about. Now, again, we've got, if you know anything about, you know, the political realm, you've got the states with control. And, and so that's kind of all over the map and how that work, works itself out. So what's, what's our responsibility? Well, our first one is, when, if we look at what Peter says, if we're filtering through the Bible, what are we going to do first? We're going to do good. We're going to do good. We're going to do good. You know, and I started thinking, well, what does it look like for us in the church? And, and the, the accusation towards the church, which is wrong, is that the church doesn't care. They, you know, they care about their political position, but they don't actually care about people that, about life. Or they would care about the unwed mothers. They would care about the situation that put them. And that is so untrue. It's such a, a horrible generalization. My mother-in-law, when she retired, she was a teacher. Um, first thing she did, she's like, I cannot retire, retire. She went and she volunteered at a crisis pregnancy center. And it was Christian-based, but it was state-run in, in Georgia, which is kind of an odd thing. But she would go there, and they, they would do everything but lead somebody down the road of abortion. And, I mean, you talk about life giving some of the most amazing testimonies to give. And for her to give her life, her time, her energy to say, I care about the baby, and I care about the mom. I want, I want this is a holistic thing. This is the better way. You know, to be a city on a hill, that's what we want to do. We don't want to take somebody on the ground and beat them up. We want to lead them, grace and truth, to the better way. There's a better way to live life. And Jesus has blazed that trail for us. And I think about our response as a church to, tr to trust God and do good. That in our community, that there's less yelling, there's less picketing, there's less anger. And there's more infiltration by, by the grace of God, by politicians, by lawyers in our government. But on our side, those of us that aren't lawyers, those of us that aren't going into politics, those of us that live in these communities, first and foremost, I'm not saying that we don't push in one direction. I mean, I could sit here and talk about schools all day and, and some of the things that I think should happen in our community when it comes to schools. But when it comes to this issue, let's, let's do good. 
Let's take this situation where it's at and let's do good. Let's, let's figure out ways to, to put ourselves in position to give people options when this happens. And not just play the shame game. Shame on you. You made a mistake. You got to deal with it. We've all made mistakes. To extend the same grace that we've gotten. And love the moms, love these families that have no reason, many of them, because they're not believers, to choose life. Apostle Paul said, why are you condemning them? It's not your job to condemn. That's God's. He's the judge. Condemn the people inside the church is what he says in Corinthians. So for us to do good. You know, when I think about any of these, I think, man, there's, there's no way for you and me to just do all this. This seems like a list of stuff, like to love our enemies, to love each other well, trust God and do good. How's that possible? How, how's it possible for me? We can't do any, any of these things without experiencing the grace of Jesus. If we don't have an understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ, if we don't have a clear vision of the picture of the sacrifice that's been made for us, then there's no way for us as a church or as individuals, as families, as single people, as students, to love one another, to love our enemies, to do good in our community, unless we've received everything that Jesus has extended to us. Unless we humbly come before God saying, you know what, I've been self-sufficient, but it's not worked. I need you, Jesus. The humble repentance of putting our lives before Jesus changes the heart, gives us compassion, allows us to hold on to truth at the same time extending grace. To know who he is, to worship together, to reframe our mind and our heart, to love the people next to us inside the church and to love the people down our streets, down our roads and in this community. It's what we wanna do. It's who we are called to be. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love that your word leads us. It gives us a framework when we're lost and we don't know, we, when we don't trust our own instincts. God, to give us words, to give us life, to give us your spirit, to lead us, lead us back to you and then lead us to others.